Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. We are working on issues like land, water. These are very deeply political issues in rural societies. There have been centuries of appropriation of these resources. Several changes are happening in in India in the last few decades. However, inequalities of ownership of resources is a major, major issue. In rural areas where there are a lot of inequalities, how do you make them less unequal? That is another important direction. Both are somewhat, uh, you know, historical injustices, centuries of degraded uh, ecosystems require time. People, village people also, like most of us, look for immediate benefits. So if you're looking at uh, a range of hills or groundwater aquifers, they do require time for restoration. However, nature has been very kind on us. You can find different kinds of plants and insects and animals coming into the repaired ecosystem even in the first year itself. I'm very pleased today to introduce Jagdish Rao. Jagdish is the Chief Executive of the Foundation for Ecological Security in India, which is working towards the ecological restoration and conservation of land and water resources in ecologically fragile, degraded and marginalised regions of India, primarily through the concentrated and collective efforts of village communities. It works with almost 9,000 communities across eight Indian states, helping to protect more than 2.5 million acres of common lands. Thank you, Jagdish, for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs. It's an honor to have an opportunity to speak to you and hear about your journey. A good place to start, if you could tell me a little bit about the Foundation for Ecological Security, the work that you do, and maybe initially how you actually came to be involved. Somewhere in mid-80s, satellite imageries were beginning to be used for developmental planning. Uh, Otherwise, it was largely used for defense purposes. When satellite imagery started hitting uh, uh, development planners uh, in mid-80s, they discovered something like one-third of India was lying in a degraded state. Uh, So the prime minister then, Mr. Rajiv Gandhi, probably in his first address to the nation, he asked for a, a people's movement, if one might say so, to restore these degraded lands. Unfortunately, we also have some historic background around, around the way these lands are called. These lands are named wastelands. That's only for collection of revenue. However, in rural India, these lands are very central to the agricultural economy. These are pastures, forests, and water bodies. So we're talking something like 50 million hectares to 80 million hectares of land, almost one-fourth or one-fifth the size of India's landmass being called wastelands. So we were invited to uh, be a part of this larger movement to restore degraded lands in India. That's how we were set up. Initially, we started off with a project with the government of India called the Tree Growers Cooperatives Project. It was bringing nature and people together. We learned several things from big, big mistakes that we did in the past. Uh, primarily, cooperatives, though they are wonderful constructs of collective action, when you look at cooperatives in the Indian context around common pool resources, by common pool resources I mean pastures, water bodies and uh, forests, which are shared resources, cooperatives 
are not probably the best instrument to restore this through structural means. By that, I mean that cooperatives, by the very construct of Indian laws, are private entities. So common lands, when restored through cooperatives, were becoming private entities and mostly in the hands of the more powerful and the bigger people in the villages. So we quickly changed gears, shifted our direction to at least uh, not be a part of this larger mistake. And we realized that we should have other bodies, other body corporates, which are more inclusive. Uh, India is bestowed with a, a constitutional provision called panchayats, which are village councils, which by their very definition include every person in the village uh, as part of the um, larger efforts towards developing the village. So we started working with panchayats and bodies like that to bring in a more inclusive governance of shared resources. The second important dimension that we moved away from uh, uh, in the from the past is that um, most often restoration of land is associated with tree growing uh, and we were named tree growers cooperatives project tree growing is not necessarily the best for pastures and grasslands uh, village people were looking at forests as shrubs grasses trees lianas whereas uh, the larger policy push was more for tree growing so we again moved away from just tree growing into looking at restoring degraded ecosystems. That's where the name of Foundation for Ecological Security came in. And how long has the organization been in existence? In the new avatar from 2001, whereas the earlier body of work under tree growers cooperatives is under 10 years prior to that. Very interesting. Tell me, over that period of time, how do you measure your impact? Two, three important aspects. One is how how uh, different are the ecosystems? Are the groundwater table better? Is the groundwater table situation better? Uh, is more land under uh, agriculture uh, because of the improved water availability? Do people migrate for want of fodder and water? If there are inclination, I mean, um, if there are uh, changes and indicators which indicate that people People are happier in terms of availability of uh, basic improved product production systems like agriculture and livestock, or if there is a better biodiversity available in the village lands, uh, if the soil health status has improved, uh, if the governance that everyone in the village is moving towards uh, shared responsibilities and uh, duties, then we call that we are doing better. Very interesting. You mentioned ecosystems, and that's an important part of what you do. To what extent is that something that has a short-term benefit or a longer term? And I'm just wondering whether there's a trade-off. Is it something that is, you know, to do with sustainability and longer-term impact? And is there a trade-off to some extent in the shorter term? What is your thinking on ecosystems and in general? And I'm just wondering also what other thinking is around on this. There are two important branches to this. One is, as you pointed out, ecosystems. The second is about shared responsibilities. How in, uh, in, a, in rural areas where there are a lot of inequalities, how do you make them less unequal? That is another uh, important direction. Having said that, both are somewhat, uh, you know, 
historical injustices, centuries of degraded uh, ecosystems require time. But people, village people also, like most of us, look for immediate benefits. So if you're looking at uh, a range of hills uh, or groundwater aquifers, they do require time for restoration. However, nature has been very kind on us. You see ephemerals coming almost in the first year. Uh, you can find different kinds of plants and uh, um, insects and animals coming uh, you know, into, the, into the repaired ecosystem even in the first year itself. If the, if the geology of that area supports recharge of groundwater, you can find uh, improved water flows even in two, three years. So you actually start getting benefits you know, economic benefits of fodder availability, of water availability in as uh, quick a time period as two, three years. So it's sustainability, yes, degraded ecosystems like dry deciduous forests or any forest for that matter require a few decades. But there are also very early symptoms of recovery, which really contribute to economic uh, opportunities in terms of hard cash for villages, fodder, livestock, uh, improved agriculture productivity, which come in two, three years' time. Right. That's very interesting. Groundwater. Now, that's obviously a big question in India and in many other countries. What's been happening with groundwater? I know that the many people, you know, farmers and, and others have, you know, their own pumps now and have been accessing water resources. Across India, what is going on with groundwater and what has been your experience? About uh, say half of India could be, or maybe one third of India could be classified as dry lands. Uh, lands which receive as such uh, less rainfall, so about 400 millimeters of rain or less. Uh, in these areas, what is most alarming is considerable, uh, you know, fossil water, like uh, uh, water stored underground, uh, groundwater aquifers have been depleted in the last 20-30 years. So much so that uh, we have almost finished off the fossil water in several 80% of dry lands in India face acute groundwater shortages because in the last 20-30 years we have depleted them uh, at a very fast rate. That's the scenario there. In other parts also there are issues of water uh, quality um, in terms of uh, fertilizers and pesticides getting into drinking water issues. Uh, issues of hygiene also affecting in terms of poor sanitation resulting in certain not so healthy organisms uh, being uh, you know, available in drinking water. So there are issues of water availability as such, then there is quality of water, surface water availability and groundwater availability. All are, all are complex and interrelated issues. Uh, if you're talking of only groundwater, what happens on surface water is also interconnected with the farmer's choices of how he uses water. Right, right. And what has been your experience working in areas with depleted water? Good news, bad news. Good news in the sense that, yes, we are able to replenish water, that is the annual supply of water in terms of rainfall. We are able to see either that it is used in a more productive and judicious manner uh, in the cropping season with some degree of success in terms of groundwater increase. But uh, if you're looking at really, really depleted uh, uh, groundwater tables, it will take quite a while. Uh, and I, I hope it is humanly possible to restore them to their original levels. 
Right, right. A big challenge, clearly a huge one and a very important one. So you mentioned the overall scale at the beginning of these lands, and I think you said it might be up to 80 million hectares. How much of that land can you actually work with or are you involved with directly? We are working on 1 million of this 80 million hectares. We are a non-profit, an NGO, and we are working with governments to influence under, say, 10 million hectares. Uh, there are categories of lands even within this degraded lands. Some of them are called wastelands, some of them are called forest lands, degraded forest lands. Each is handled by a different uh, arm of the government. So the challenge is to make the government see that you know a degree of devolution in the management of these lands into the hands of the rural people could be a very cost-effective way of improving the management of these lands and also investments in these lands in terms of, I hope you are aware that India has a very a nice act called the right to employment where any person in the village is, um, can uh, claim a right of 100 days of employment. Now, how does this money, the public investments of this right to employment funds, how are these funds utilized for restoring this degraded you know, 40 to 80 million hectares of land is an important challenge. And how many people work in your organization? We are about 350 people. We have an army of village people. I don't know if army is the right word, but we have about a million households with whom we engage almost on a twice a week basis. Wow. That's a very big uh, number um, of households because presumably there's several people in a household as well. So that reaches out. Yeah, somewhere like 4 million people. So what have been some of the organizational challenges you faced? You mentioned that you're a not-for-profit. Did you consider at any time introducing some other revenue streams, or is that a possibility? Where do you get your funding from as well? From several sources. The main contribution for villages is from Indian government. Uh, there's considerable public investments from the Indian government to restore land and water resources. So as far as funds required at village level for the basic work of improving what we call biophysical infrastructure, I mean soil, water, nutrients, that is available from Indian monies. What um, the challenge is to raise funds for this 300, 350 people. So that's where we are. Uh, we have several philanthropies, both within and outside the country, who are showing a lot of interest in our kind of work. Uh, we had some difficult times in uh, early 2000s when uh, uh, there were certain changes in government of India's policies. But uh, now uh, we are reasonably well off in the sense that um, we can plan in a in the wage system, in the salary system of what NGOs offer, not comparable with corporates, but yes, people who are deeply passionate either about nature or about poor people, poverty, injustice, those are the people whom we attract. And they forego a lot of uh, opportunities to work with us. Great, great. So can you talk to me a bit about what happens when you engage with a piece of land? How does it work? So presumably at a certain point, you identify a, a piece of land that needs work and would have a big impact on a community. Can you give me a snapshot of, of, of how the process works? 
we work, uh, you know, nature's boundaries are different from human boundaries. Human boundaries are households, villages. Nature's boundaries are like a, you know, a biodiversity reserve, a range of hills or a small tributary of a river. Uh, because birds don't know these boundaries or the flow of water also doesn't know the boundaries, uh, doesn't know artificial human boundaries. So we pick up a landscape. By landscape, I mean a small tributary or a natural feature like a range of hills and work on all aspects around those land and forest and biodiversity and nutrient issues. We also work with all human settlements which lie along this uh, uh, natural boundaries. So it would be somewhere to the tune of 100 villages, 150 villages along a range of hills whom who uh, the, the natural boundaries are also named by the village people because of, there has been a, a centuries of association. They have names for the mountains, they have names for the river. So work with in contiguity with all the villages that are situated in this uh, topographies. And what happens initially is um, these days it is much much easier than say 30, 20 years ago when we started work, where people did not have much confidence in outside people coming and working on land-related issues or uh, uh, bringing people together. They viewed us with great degree of suspicion. So the initial years were hard because we had to also, the governments also did not have much faith in the capabilities of local people. So we had to demonstrate that local people are wise, they are capable and of uh, restoring degraded systems, or they are capable of coming up with rules and regulations to manage themselves. More importantly, they are also capable of regulating bad behavior, injustice, if proper devaluation happens to them. So we had to work at the level of the village people, and the governments. Governments had to pass on the ownership of land. That is an important aspect of our work. So land titles had to be arrived at. What was called wasteland had to be renamed as village land, and that land had to be transferred back to village communities. So slowly, slowly, about six governments, six state governments have agreed to transfer back uh, such lands which were poorly being managed by centralized authorities into the hands of the village people. Once it is in the hands of village people, we do a, quite a high degree of uh, technological assessments, like what is the geology of the area, what is the hydrological flows, what is the local uh, flora and fauna, and then what should be the conservation action measures according to the traditional wisdom. We also work parallelly into what are the constituent people, how are they dependent, what are the existing traditional ways of sharing. We build on the existing patterns of village life. If they know how to manage a temple, we draw principles from that into managing forests, managing pastures. So together with the narrative of collective action and restoring these ecological aspects, then we see the resultant economic benefits. Very, very interesting. You mentioned the technological assessment of the land that you're working with. How much more do we know about ecosystems and helping them to develop? To what degree is science helping and feeding in? I mean, new ideas, and you're obviously yourselves discovering new ideas and so forth about you know how these should operate and how they come together and you know grow over time. Huh, I should say, share this with you. A friend of mine who was working with uh, some tribal women, indigenous women, uh, shared this with me. Uh, one of these women, one of these tribal women, she said that 
when it comes to nature, we have not even learned to ask the right kind of questions. Leave alone the answers. <laughs> yes, uh, I found that always fascinating that uh, each year, oh, I've been into this for about 30 years now, each year we are trying to comprehend more and more about how nature functions, even to the extent of asking the right kind of questions. Um, that said, yes, uh, within the organization, the the irreplaceable and invaluable need for looking at interrelationships is something that we are internalizing. The interrelationship between uh, organic life and inorganic material, interrelationship between plants and animals, interrelationships between, I mean, uh, natural side and the social sciences, interrelationship between ecological, economic, and social aspects of life. So that is one fundamental new science emerging. Uh, some people are calling it socio-ecological thinking, socio-ecological science. In fact, there is a society for socio-ecological science. So it is, I think, in this um, interrelationships, the seeing together of these various disciplines, which are on their own good to understand deeply, but there is, we should not miss the uh, woods for the trees. Uh, there's a larger meaning in interdisciplinarity. I think that's where we are all progressing. We, we also move into using very high-end science with universities in the West to understand systems thinking, um, even within ecosystems, between ecosystems and human people. It's called systems dynamics. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Uh, there are other aspects of very cutting-edge science which we use, like uh, behavioral uh, issues of groundwater use or water use per se, could be understood better or could, uh, could be f collective action could be fostered through uh, experimental games uh, wherein people try to uh, see the unintended consequences of their action, thereby bringing about behavioral change in themselves, uh, particularly about changing consumption patterns of water, consumption patterns of fertilizer, uh, requires some kind of an internalizing and a reflection, uh, which this kind of uh, cutting-edge science is helping us address. <clears throat> That's very interesting. Uh, That's very am interesting. I making myself clear? Or should I explain more about that? That's very interesting. I might come back to that in a moment. But you also mentioned something which is at the heart of your work, which I think is also very important, is this idea of inequality, you know, that's built up over, you know, long periods of time and how your work helps to, you know, redress inequality. Can you talk a little bit about that and your experience in, in working maybe in villages as well? We are working on issues like land, water. Uh, these are very deeply political issues in uh, rural societies. Uh, there have been centuries of appropriation of these resources by whosoever was in the you know, control of power uh, at that point in time. Uh, several changes are happening in, the, in India in the last few decades. However, inequalities of ownership of resources is a major, major issue. Now, one uh, area, one domain is common resources, common pool resources or shared resources like pasture. In the absence of good governance or when governments and or even local governments are, um, uh, are not uh, uh, 
effectively addressing the management and governance of this issue of these resources uh, it usually these resources usually end up in the hands of the bigger people in the village uh, or say men in the village women get marginalized or certain uh, kinds of livelihoods like pastoralists uh, hunters and gatherers those lives are considered lesser lives and they tend to get uh, uh, marginalized to the peripheries now uh, whether it is fashionable whether those kind of livelihoods can uh, face the test of time or not is a separate issue but they are all alive they are all there and they depend on the shared resources for as much as 70 to 80% of their uh, biomass needs water needs this is significant so how do we ensure that they are equal players or at least they have a position of equality whether they exercise it or not is a another uh, long term issue we provide those we try to reason with the governments to provide those structural spaces where all human beings are equal so if you have pastures if you have forests in the village by their virtue of being residents of the villages everyone becomes a, a an equal person in terms of access and benefit sharing of those resources we try to push governments we try to convince them and they are very willing to listen to this in terms of um, uh, the poorer person getting a better uh, say in the management and governance of these lands this is easier said than done that the changes are slow but uh, if we talk of equity people might be it might not be politically feasible in rural indian context but equality is something which they are all willing to talk about by equity and equality difference what we are trying to say is uh, because there are poorer people in the village should they get more uh, that is something what rural societies are not yet able to come to terms with but if there is if there are 100 people in the village and if there are 100 tons of fodder they are okay with agreeing 100 by 100 so equality is something that they are uh, uh, quite comfortable with the challenge is to see whether people who are more dependent on it get more resources that is something we should be moving towards too that's very interesting you mentioned at the beginning traditionally over time many governments didn't really have a lot of confidence in local people's ability to you know manage resources and so forth what's been your experience and have you some insights in how to cultivate this kind of forum for collective sharing and and i guess managing the commons yeah yes it was a difficult job but the, the larger uh, movement of uh, democracy in india itself has contributed i wouldn't say it is just fes or my organization but we did play a role in as far as managing shared resources the common pool resources commons are concerned that uh, village people are also capable of uh, equally capable about managing shared resources if not better so that is something we significantly contributed to we also highlighted this this vocabulary of commons in uh, policy 
spaces in programmatic spaces in the government so that uh, they are no more called as wastelands or degraded land but they are looked at as village commons where uh, there is an articulation and a narrative built around uh, shared resources rather than leaving them as neglected resources we contributed very very important we helped uh, one province in the north uh, draft a policy on commons we helped uh, two other states in south uh, of India in coming up with massive programs around restoring commons. They did not get so much into policy, but they have programs. Something to the effect of uh, $250 million US dollars we could contribute uh, and draft programs in these three provinces to put together uh, for the next three, four years uh, directly. This is something that FES could directly do. We So we are in the space of influencing governments to see wisdom in devolution, in in passing on the rights of over the land uh, in terms of ownership, in terms of uh, equally articulating responsibilities of village people in uh, in managing these lands. So yes, our contribution has been important, modest. We have a long way to go. Uh, the question that you are asking is a, a larger fundamental issue. Uh, Government's faith in the capacities of um, people, rural people in particular. In fact, the mainstream thinking about the wisdom of rural people itself is questionable. People think that village people are not so wise. So we were in that space that uh, because people cannot manage shared resources, governments usually tend to centralize or tend to individualize properties. We said that between these extremes of centralization or individualization, there is a space like commons. This particular field is gaining prominence in very other, many other domains like um, internet space, uh, you have uh, Wikipedias, Creative Commons, you have uh, open source, Linux, uh, no, even in uh, creative commons, that is, knowledge is also an important. So this is not only something which is affecting rural areas and rural, you know, natural resources. There are other kinds of uh, knowledge systems which are developing across the world where uh, communities are coming together to form their own spaces of self-regulation. Um, and that's, I think, a very uh, desirable way so that governments... Um, do their larger job of regulatory functions in a more effective manner. And individuals, um, of course, are more effective in managing certain functions. But there is a larger space of community life, uh, both in rural and urban areas, which could actually be uh, harnessed. The potential we are not really seeing much in public space. There are a couple of points there that I thought were quite interesting. And I'm just wondering in terms of this trade-off between the short term and the long term, you know, it's always a challenge because, you know, I guess in, a, in any situation, people who are investing time and so forth may have a tendency to want, you know, to get returns as quick as possible while you're dealing with some nature which clearly, you know, has these long-term depleted lands and so forth which need, you know, time to develop. So I'm just wondering how that's dealt with at local communities and also how the power politics plays out, you know, if you have got a certain dynamics in a village already with certain powerful figures, what your experience has been in in cultivating more equitable, you know, ways of of, of organising and sharing resources. On the first part, on seeing the 
you know, the long-term nature of ecological restoration, village people are not really that worried. Uh, they fully understand, and in fact, their expectations from uh, such natural resources like pastures and forests, they are of long-term nature. I remember very clearly in uh, discussions with village communities in the 90s, village people were not interested in planting short-term species they were looking at the larger benefits that ecosystems offer. Uh, I had repeated discussions with them. We had this trade-off between offering some kind of plantations or should we go for you know, forest recovery. They could very clearly see the difference between a plantation, which is more or less a single species, and the rich uh, value of multiple species and the interaction that, that happen between species. So, yes, they are interested that they get fodder, but any... Um, you know, uh, natural resource which is uh, which is going through a process of natural uh, recovery offers immediate returns in terms of fodder, in terms of pollination, in terms of pests control, or you know, in the geology is supporting even in terms of recharge of water. So village people can quickly see the benefits of that. Uh, very quickly translating into results of livestock production, if nothing else. Many people. Um, eat, subsist on forest produce. That is something which comes about even in the first couple of years. Uh, all their uh, supplements of their uh, diet are actually taken care of from the forest. Medicines is another thing which is, uh, which is quite uh, uh, attractive to village people. Medicines that they pick up from forests and pastures, particularly for veterinary care. Uh, so these are things which they immediately uh, connect to. But they, I should not reduce their visions of their uh, uh, taking care of natural resources to a short-term nature. Village people are not. In fact, the impulses that we send from outside actually tend to make them look at short-term benefits. Uh, left alone, I think they'll really look at long-term uh, benefits like hydrological improvement. And um, The second aspect is a more twisted one. The second aspect of you know inequalities in the village we find it challenging ourselves. Uh, whatever we try to do, they usually try to reinforce local power structures, existing power structures. And there is a great degree of uh, comfort in not disturbing status quo. But uh, once you gain the wisdom, gain the confidence of the village people, then if you start bringing in questions of are women included in this, uh, what about their interests compared to the larger common good of the village? Uh, many villages are able to take action in terms of including women and their visions of how that resource should look like. Uh, but it's uh, it's easiest to say that you know things are shaping up good but we have many, many challenges to go. There are several other things which are actually helping address these inequalities, say markets, uh, you know, good sens sensitive markets actually are disturbing, are helping um, reduce inequalities in village situations. Good market uh, prices are making village people get better monies, so they don't have to depend on the one village person who used to previously buy all, buy all their produce at whatever uh, you know minimum wage. Uh, markets, in a way, are friendly that way. The second aspect is technology and communication. With mobile phones coming in, uh, 
people are not necessarily relying on the village headman anymore. The village headman, most of them are not so great people. So people with uh, mobile communication coming in, they're connected to everything and any person. So the power centralization around knowledge and information, that has got diffused. Uh, and so has TV. Uh, TV also has changed uh, people's sense of equality. They feel definitely socially more equal now. Uh, so there are important changes happening. Of course, there are other several political spaces because fortunately in India, all said and done, we are a democracy. So uh, there are other spaces in which poorer people are uh, definitely in a better place than, say, 30, 40 years ago. Fascinating. I'm just wondering if there was one case study that you could kind of give a, a kind of a, just an overview of, you know, a best case scenario, a piece of land that you got involved in and how you would characterize the changes that have taken place. There are many such cases. I would not know if it's the best case, but yes, best fit case, definitely in the situation that they are in and what are the complexities they are dealing with and uh, what are the arrangements that uh, that they have come up with. I'm talking about one village in uh, Rajasthan. It's uh, called Amartya, uh, some place that I have been to about three or six months ago. I've been there even previously. These people started off restoring their uh, in uplands, uh, the, the hills, uh, with better, uh, basically nat natural re regeneration and plantings in certain places which required some kind of an assistance. Uh, as a result of these efforts, uh, in about five, six years, uh, the dry deciduous forests definitely started showing improvement in terms of fodder and uh, tree growth, in terms of biomass availability. What was more appealing was the changes that happened in the recharge of water because of the, this is in Rajasthan, relatively less rainfall, about 800 millimeters of rainfall in a year. Uh, the whole economy depends on uh, groundwater. They have one crop because of the rain, but the second crop, if at all they have to take, they have to depend on groundwater. And groundwater, they had open wells. So when this entire village, and women play a strong role in that village, um, they started, uh, uh, the, the results of this improved collective action, when it started showing on the hills, the water table improved. Now, the water table improved, <laughs> improvement attracted different kind of uh, different kinds of greed in the village. The village big man wanted to deepen that open well and put a motor in it, a submersible motor set in it, so he could uh, take a third crop also. The whole village got together and said that, uh, no, uh, if you start putting in a, a motor into your well, there will be under 20 people who will come in and they will also start doing the same. As a result of which, we might have third crop, but in a, it is going to be a zero-sum game in a matter of few years, wherein again we will deplete the whole water table and we would all be again, uh, uh, you know, we would be in a worse situation. So because of the peer pressure, they could contain this big man from stopping to drill his bore well um, in the well that he automatically owns. So what was being conceived as private property that the water belongs to him because just he owns the land above became a common property of the village. The water became a common property where everyone regulates each other. This matter got uh, 
the village headman was not so happy. He went uh, up to the ministers and all the big people in the in the state. We also uh, the, uh, helped the village people in trying to understand what are the laws prevailing in the country about how they can help uh, regularize groundwater as a common property. Unfortunately, there is no law which recognizes uh, water and groundwater as a common property. <clears throat> but though the legal and um, policy level help was less, the village people could regulate merely through collective action and peer pressure. They did not. It's been about five, six years. They did not allow that person to uh, uh, take this third crop or allow the you know deepening of his well. This action has spread to some five, ten villages in that area where everyone has recognized and though there is no enabling policy framework, people have uh, made water as their uh, commons. It, it cannot be done by individual action alone. This is a kind of a success story. It's a mixed story. Now, my question to them is, what about under 20 years? Do you mean to say with the population, you would not be increasing your water? Are we going to meet food security with this current level of uh, production? Uh, what about third crop? Or So they have come up with solutions. At least uh, they have articulated that they would have to learn because they live in water scarce area. They will have to learn to optimize natural resource use rather than maximize opt uh, water resource use. So that is the current level of debate happening in that area. I have many, many stories of yes. village leadership. Yes. Where, yeah. No, that's very, very interesting. A couple of other thoughts while we're there. I'm wondering about what your vision is over the next, I don't know, five or 10 years, how you think about the vision of the organization and, and how do you deal with scaling? You know, you already have a, uh, you know, a very deep network of, you know, as you say, there's maybe four million, you know, certainly a million, a million households and so forth. Have you any thoughts on the, the question of what you've learned about scaling, you know, working in large, extending your impact and what your plans are? The aim is two, three, four. One, but on the physical spaces, we have somewhere this 40 million to 80 million hectares uh, in the country. Uh, so that is the the larger aim. How do we influence change in this 40 to 80 million hectares space? Uh, we know it cannot be done by us. We can show good examples. We can engage with governments. We could engage with other actors. But doing it on our own, it is not even desirable. There has to be a diversity of such efforts rather than just we doing it. But our message is clear. We have learned two, three things. That if you see that the the title on that land is in the name of the village people, if, the, if there is a security of tenure, village people invest energies and they regulate themselves far, far well. So one message is clear. How do we devolve ownership of land to communities? Second, not necessarily individuals, but communities uh, on the whole. The second important aspect is title on its own is not enough. What are the institutions? What are the rules and regulations that people have to evolve? That has to go hand in hand with, uh, with this uh, titling. The third, if you have restoration efforts, most of India's land has been neglected in terms of public investments. That's the, that is the third dimension of the work where title, institutions, and restoration could result in palpable economic benefits and not 
in the too distant future, but in the short and medium term to village communities. This is the basic business model we take. In terms of strategies for scaling, we have this uh, right to employment that I was talking about, something like $6 billion uh, being spent annually on land and water in India. How do we match these financial investments with institutional investments? By institutional investments, I mean basically devolution and passing on tenure and clear access and benefit arrangements to village people. In terms of scaling up, we have some two, three strategies which we are work, which we have been working. We join hands with governments, help them with policies and programs. Once these programs and policies are announced, we help governments undertake campaigns. We use high-end technology, SMSs, uh, response centers. We help village people with uh, do-it-yourself kind of manuals. Having said all that, you know, in terms of distance education, we also felt the need to actually train people, train village. So we have uh, rural colleges, one in the west and one in the south and one in the east, wherein hundreds of semi-literate, neoliterate people are trained into mapping their resources, into forming village institutions. This is what we call as rural colleges, and we are in the capacity building is something which we really require so that the monies are spent well. Whatever are the policy directions from the government, they are actually translating in the village situation. Third is collaborations. We join hands with other NGOs and also train them. We join them in uh, not necessarily related to land and water, but if they are working on coastal waters, we also see that our kind of work is translating into somewhat related domains of commons. Um, we would partner with, say, coastal commons, with seed commons. So this kind of a thinking is also influencing the entire ecosystem. So basically, it is creating an enabling environment with, by working with the government, capacity building at the local level, and collaborations uh, with like-minded organizations. That's the strategy for scaling up. That's fascinating. That was the last thing I was going to ask you, Jagdish, was about working with other organizations, because I think it's talking to, you know, people who are social entrepreneurs and people who are, you know, NGOs and so forth. You see that a lot of scope to work and, and share knowledge and so forth. And clearly, over the decades and the work that you've done, it built up this deep knowledge of, you know, what works and also in terms of the, you know, relationships that have been built up over time. It's a fascinating vision and it's been a joy to talk to you and very interesting. So thank you very much, Jagdish, for, for that. And I wish you the very best of success over the coming years. Thank you. Thank you, Virgil. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.